We have to grasp that the biosphere is an absolute boundary that limits our behaviour. Then you say, okay, well, how do you get that biosphere imperative to made real in the practical functioning of humans? Put it into every constitution. Having got that in, then that's when change starts to happen, when action starts to happen. Hello. And welcome to the second series of the Hidden Power podcast called Pre-Flight Checklist. It's a useful analogy which we are using to think about getting the best out of our little lives on Spaceship Earth, using something that profoundly impacts our lives, but none of us ever really see, a constitution. In this series, we explore one by one each of the 26 principles that would govern a pleasant life through and at the far side of the current climate emergency. I'm Philip Tottenham, and my co-presenter is the author of these principles, Ed Straw. Hello. Hello, Philip. <laughs> We're already on principle number three of these conditions to see us into a glorious future. And would you like to read out principle number three? This is about the rule of law. All members of a society, including those in government are equally subject to publicly disclosed legal codes and processes, which is the rule of law. Okay, so looking at that, I suppose the particular point of that, in a sense, is this idea of including those in government, that there there are elites that might evade the, the rule of law. Is that kind of a part of the thinking there? It's particularly important if you want to have a democracy and you want to have reasonable equality, you know, the law doesn't just apply to you or I or anyone listening, um, but it applies to how members of governments behave. Um, Which is particularly prescient, I suppose, given our recent history, particularly in the US. But also you have this strongman syndrome across the world, really. And I sometimes feel it's driven by the rise of China. But uh, certainly in Poland, Hungary, Brazil, Russia as well, um, they, they all seem to have these strongmen leaders who are flouting the rule of law in, in a major way. Is that, does that ring true to you? Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, but, but if I can just backtrack a bit. And, sure. You know, why, why does this rule of law matter? I mean, why, why is it so important? Right. So... Why are Scotland's castles comparatively young compared with the really ancient ones that you'll find in England and Wales? Mm. So you go there and you'll see these castles. They tend to be quite narrow and very tall uh, for purposes of defence. Well, the reason is that the rule of law was not established in Scotland until about 250 years ago. I discovered this, you know, when I was on holiday there and went to visit one of these castles. And if you think about that, okay, so before the rule of law, how did you defend yourself, look after yourself, protect yourself? Well, essentially by force. So you needed a castle. As soon as the rule of law comes in, then that replaces force and violence, tribes, clans and all the rest of it. So that's the absolute foundation as to why we need the rule of law. Now, 
there are several distinctions to be made at this point. One is that the rule of law does not mean that you should and I should obey every single law unless those laws have been developed by an agreed means through a democratic constitutional means, which if we go back to principle number two, people and constitutional sovereignty, it's saying that from there, we the people should define how laws are made. If you have a really good and democratic system for how laws are made, then we can all accept the rule of law. So in this case, the rule of law is really about what are we agreeing are the rules for us to function together? It's a meta principle that sits above any particular law that says we are going to live our lives and we're going to conduct our society through the rule of law. That's how we're going to operate. We're not going to do it through who's got the biggest muscles, the most guns and force and violence Mm. and all the rest of it. So that's there. Now, where we have these strongmen, to come back to your point, where we have these strongmen, essentially what you'll find is that their constitutions and their means for making laws are flawed. So someone gets power in a majoritarian system, a government gets into power, you get a strong man or, or indeed strong woman at the top of that who then decides, right, we can change laws as we wish because none of these laws are entrenched, to use the word, in the Mm. Constitution. We can change them as we wish, and now we're going to, for example, eliminate checks and balances. We, Mm. We might even eliminate other political parties. We might make all sorts of changes. And, of course, in America... Um, you have this really curious setup where, on the one hand, there is the rule of law and there is a democratic process for constructing laws, which is quite reasonable. But then you have the Supreme Court. Hmm. And it turns out the Supreme Court is politically appointed. So, Another absolute fundamental in terms of the rule of law working for everyone and working fairly is that the judiciary, when it comes to applying the laws, are independent. So if, as in Russia, for example, a president can lean on, dismiss or otherwise deal with members of the judiciary, you don't have an independent judiciary and they will do whatever the politicians want them to do, particularly in relation to their opponents. In the US, you've got this curious situation where you have the Supreme Court appointed by the president, which means cumulatively over time, you can end up in the situation, which is where they've ended up now, where they have essentially, I mean, to put it in simple terms, a Republican majority Hmm. That Republican majority will then, in effect, make laws and change laws, for example, in relation to political party donations, which had been capped and reduced by an act of Congress, 
The Supreme Court then said, oh, no, 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 this isn't in accordance with whichever amendment it is of the US Constitution, which says freedom of speech. And freedom of speech means their interpretation means that corporations, uh, the wealthy, can donate as much money to whoever they want. So you could see that there are foundations and building blocks to this principle, which if they operate, is great. And by and large, the laws are good, the laws are accepted. But even in somewhere like the US, particularly Hungary, Poland, Mm. Philippines, actually, even in the UK, you can find that the rule of law is undermined by the government using mechanisms that are weak in the constitution in order to get round the rule of law. And do you think that there's a necessary tension between the rule of law and interests of business in general and big business in particular? You know, it would seem to me that, that there's always going to be, for people who are trying to get things done in business, they're always navigating these codes and rules to try and maximize profit, where obviously from the point of view of people, they want to sort of limit how far any individual in control of a corporation can circumvent or find loopholes and that kind of thing. Is that, yeah, is that written into it? It can be, and it should be. And as we go through these principles, the way in which companies operate, they should be given a social license to operate. Mm. The way in which they operate should be governed by the rule of law, which is essentially agreed by us all. In the current circumstances, companies in all sorts of ways are all over us. So the whole data privacy thing is a pretty obvious one that various sort of technology giants have decided that they're just going to help themselves to anything about us in terms of our data. Mm. Um, you can see that companies driven by an objective which should not be singular, i.e. profit, but driven by that and then their own incomes, want to get round any environmental constraints, constraints in terms of the way in which people are employed, and will seek to drive down employment conditions. You see it in terms of intellectual property rights, where companies get a piece of intellectual property. I mean, let's say it's a recording, it's a piece of music, or it's a film, a video. Mm-hmm. And they say, right, we own that now, and we are going to maximise our profits from that. But then you find that actually a lot of people are going, no, 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 you're charging too much. Actually, poor people can't afford it. So you get mass piracy in response to bad law and, if you like, democracy taking over in relation to that. But, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. The whole relationship between big organisations, the massively wealthy global companies and the rest of it in relation to the law, well, needs reform in a big way, needs sorting out. It brings in another point, actually, about uh, the rule of law, which, of course, international laws apply to us. And that's absolutely right and proper, because if we're going to trade, well, even if people are going to fly in aeroplanes, people are going to travel, etc., 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 then we have to have some international agreements, some international laws. 
Well, that but, segues nice into our principle one in terms of the biosphere, because presumably if we're going to have rules that allow us to protect the biosphere, they need to be international. They need to, or at least they need to be internationally agreed at some level. First of all, we need them to go back to principle one. So the biosphere as part of the rule of law, stop polluting it, clear up the mess. And then that has to be applied in a way that's going to work. In order for that to work, I mean, the absolute onus on every national government to do that. But some of that onus is also on the international agreements as well. Well, where does that leave us then? I suppose I'm, what I find myself wondering is, given the, the struggles that we've seen in terms of the rule of law, I'm kind of wondering about, you know, we, we get to the point of the, in each session where we're thinking about models and, and who's, you know, successfully applied the rule of law. And in fact, I do, uh, again, I think we mentioned this in previous episode that um, in the Economist Intelligence Unit Democracy Index, Ireland came in at number eight between Denmark and Australia, which yeah. for me is just unthinkable. I grew up in Ireland in the 1980s. The idea that Ireland would be the eighth best performing democracy in the world would have been laughed at. And yet, here we are. And it's, I mean, I don't know if there's any one thing that has triggered that. I, I feel that it may be a lot to do with being a part of the EU, although it's very hard to, to tell, you know, if there's any single thing. I think it may also be a cultural enlightenment of a kind because, you know, the people on television in the island in the 80s, there was a lot of talk about uh, the Irish inferiority complex and the, the culture of begrudgery, the culture of violence and all this kind of thing. Um, so I think there was a certain amount of growing up done within Ireland. But again, it shows what's possible. I, I don't wish to take away from Ireland's rise up the rankings, which is indeed commendable. But the Economist Intelligence Unit does position the UK as a fully functioning democracy. So we must remember that the Economist yeah. standards are pretty low. But leaving that to one side, there are many models around the world. I think in terms of the World Justice Project, the top three are Denmark, Norway and Finland. And you'll find legal systems and the way in which they operate vary around the world. You know, we have our system and we think, well, that's the system, isn't it? Well, actually, no. I don't know whether anyone watches Spiral, which is a French detective crime series oh yeah we can put a link to that in the show notes but there you'll see the inquisitorial investigation so the police are in effect accompanied by a prosecutor to do their investigation and and then a judge will get involved in an early stage now Mm. our system is what's called an adversarial system so almost universally You know, you have the defence and you have the prosecution and then you have the two arguing in court. Well, in an inquisitorial system, the judge will do an investigation and and that person is trying to probe and find out the truth. Mm. If you go back to Welsh law from the 13th century, was much more about restorative justice or mediation justice in effect where rather than an eye for an eye in essence Mm. so you know you thumped someone badly and so you're put in prison 
is trying to work out how is it that justice could be restored to the victim. That reminds me very much of the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, where an entire constituency of people were being held to account in a way that was very much about truth and reconciliation rather than all of them being... I mean, the, the equivalent of the sort of Nuremberg trials after World War Two. Well, exactly. Um, which I'm not objecting to, but it's, a, it's an alternative. I mean, particularly in the context of South Africa, where we're not aiming to find people guilty and punish them because actually... You know, it's an extraordinarily mixed set of circumstances. Mm. What we're aiming to do is to bring to the fore the truth and what actually did happen, which is, in many respects, a therapeutic process and, and a process, therefore, of building for the future that in the future, white and black people can walk hand in hand to the future. Mm hasn't quite worked out like that, but I think it was much better than having mass trials and mass punishments and all the rest of it. Because the truth obviously lies at the heart of what we're trying to do when we apply the law. So this is not about the rule of law as a principle, but in order for that to work, we are seeking the truth. And Mm. uh, The question then comes into the legal systems, well, what are the best ways of seeking the truth? Well, in a way, this brings us back to the strongman issue that, you know, if a Trump basically disputing, you know, news and facts and having alternative facts and fake news, but if there is that prevailing acceptance of what is true, then it is possible to hold power accountable via, obviously, the rule of law. It's a principle we'll come on to later, but I do think principles the world can't run on lies. It's interesting because we've talked about this before, Ed, and I do find myself thinking, well, it's absolutely true. Of course, you know, if people live in a realm of of untruth, then they cannot function in, in reality. And yet you have this culture. And again, it's not that I'm in any way against business. I attempt to to run a a business um, and you have certain hoops that you need to get through. And you need to position yourself in a particular way. And it's not the same as being untrue, because sometimes too much truth or too much reality, like you can confuse the situation unnecessarily by kind of not presenting your case clearly. So this issue of the prevailing lies, I mean, I can quite see why successful businessmen might have acculturated themselves to more or less believing that what they decide is true and it's just a question of ticking the right boxes so it's not that they're bad for thinking that but they've just become used to thinking that if you see the distinction absolutely habituated but that's where the rule of law should fly in as it were and go actually there is a responsibility a duty and accountability to speak the truth and to work towards the truth Mm. speak truth unto power And that would have meant that an awful lot of the fake news and the concocted statistics and the bent science, the pseudoscience that was used to delay Mm. and delay and delay effective action 
around the climate and all of the other crises in the biosphere that we're now experiencing, uh, that delay would not have occurred. And that's, you know, a massive indictment of allowing lies, disingenuity, corporate speak, whatever you want, to come to be the prevailing means of discourse in many societies. Well, as you say, we'll be getting on to straight speak and, and the press in, in another principle and another episode. Um, I suppose what I find myself taking from all this is the importance of just being observant with regards to the rule of law and its opposite, which is, on the one hand, you know, having to live in a castle or a gated community so that you're not robbed, yeah. or on the other hand, being subject to the will of someone who's effectively a fascist leader that these are the risks of not having this. And, and therefore, that suggests to me that it's worth waking up to the possibilities of using the rule of law to create a just society, for want of a better term, because that's, that's what allows people without power to hold power to account. I think you've put that very, very well, that, you know, the purpose of this podcast is to bring out of the closet, as it were, the absolute essential nature of the rule of law to a well-functioning society. It's a thing we take for granted. Exactly. You know, again, there's a role for education here, as ever. You know, it's, it's absolutely vital that people should grow up with and understand that the single rule of law is vital and essential to us. And I suppose in particular, not just that it's vital and essential insofar as we have to follow rules or follow certain rules, but also this element of having a, a voice, not just deciding what those rules are, but being able to deftly use those rules to protect oneself and to be very clear about what the boundaries are. Boundaries, are, I mean, obviously are a massive part of, of uh, evolving the consciousness of a growing child anyway. But understanding yeah. the rule of law in that context, I think, is huge for their individual power. There's quite an interesting comparison here that Hayek made. The economist, the Austrian economist Hayek. Yeah, who, well, Mrs. Thatcher, when she came to power, had one of his books in her hand and waved it at her cabinet members and said, this is what we believe. And I mean, Hayek has been much criticised as a person who contributed to the rise and birth of neoliberal economics. But he drew this distinction between what he called legislation, i.e. laws, versus law. Actually, what he meant by that was emerging rules or social norms. So, mm. yeah, there's legislation which happens in the parliament or the congress or whatever it is, and then there are social norms that arise. So the social norms, for example, which arise because we in our daily going about find that these social norms are good for the functioning of society. The classic one being queuing or, or indeed in some societies not queuing. But this has emerged as a way we want to live. And in many respects, the ideal laws are ones that emerge from social norms, that this is the way in which we want to live. Well, that's a great place to finish. I think that's absolutely true. Would you like to look forward to next week and principle number four? I 
would indeed, Philip. And just to say that there are some very good YouTube videos which are on the show notes, and you can have the very formal definition by someone called Lord Bingham, who used to be the top judge in the UK. You can have different interpretations, which are also useful. There's an Australian one there, and so oh, on. But if, you, if you want to dig deeper, do. But to take your cue, number four principle, a constitutional court adjudicates on the interpretation of the Constitution. Its decisions are binding. Great. Well, that's it. Thanks, Ed. Thank you very much, Philip. See you next week. See you next week.